Hello and welcome to Story of the Book, where middle grade YA and picture book authors tell the stories of their books from beginning to end. I'm Hayley Chewins, I write books about magical girls with secrets. And I'm Lindsay Eager, I write books about growing up in this weird, wondrous world. And we're so very happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on Story of the Book, we are talking to Maggie Thrash about her book, Lost Soul Be at Peace, which is a graphic novel memoir that came out from Candlewick in 2018, 2019, 2018. What is time? 2018 is when it came out. (laughs) Maggie, thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to talk about this. It's uh, it's such a a good book, and it is going to open up so many conversations about your work process that I'm like very excited to talk about. Um, that we haven't really been able to talk about on the podcast with anyone yet. Um, but first of all, will you talk about what Lost Soul Be at Peace is in whatever way you want? I know I'm sure it's been a while since you've done like an official pitch, so it can be an unofficial pitch if you need it to be. Well, it's, it's, it, (laughs) okay, got me just immediately cracking up laughing after the question. Okay. (laughs) It's, it's, it's inception was rather cynical because, so it's, it's technically a sequel to my graphic memoir, Honor Girl, um, which is about how I fell in love for the first time at an all girls summer camp. And that book came out in 2015. And it, people liked it, you know, it got nominated for some awards and my agent was like, we gotta, we gotta follow this up. We, you know, you have to ride the wave. And I was still in a kind of idealistic phase where I was like, no, I'm a successful author. That means I can just follow my vision now. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to ride any waves. I don't have to, I don't have to do these sort of cynical maneuverings of, about like, you know, cashing in on um, previous success or whatever. But basically he convinced me to do it. And so I went in kind of kicking and screaming. I did not want to write this book at all. <laughs> I And what was in really illuminating for me about the process of writing this is that by the end, it turned into the most important thing I think I have written, certainly the most important thing I've published so far. So it showed me that, you know, there's this idea that you have to follow your heart and follow your passion and ignore everything else, ignore what people tell you to do. But inspiration can actually come from the most cynical of places. And so now that I've learned that it it sort of opened me up to, I'll try anything now. Um, I don't have, I don't feel like I have this narrow path as a creator anymore. But anyway, so we needed a follow-up from Honor Girl. We knew it couldn't be, I knew it couldn't be another love story, you know, that it needed to be something different. I wanted it to be something different. And so, you know, my agent was just basically saying like, well, what's the next interesting thing that happened to you after, after Honor Girl? And I could not sort of get out of my head this that my I'd lost my cat and my cat had disappeared inside my own house when I was 16 
I never, this is a semi-spoiler, but I never figured out what happened. Um, it was this incredibly strange horror movie kind of event where, where this cat that was very precious to me just disappeared. And I just thought, well, that's probably the most important thing that happened. <laughs> but how could I write an entire book about a cat disappearing? And it turns out there was a lot of, there was so much richness in that. Um, so much about loss of childhood innocence, so much about the fact that I, I was a, a very privileged child. I lived in a really huge house, way too big for me and my parents. And I had a sibling who was off at college. And this feeling of the cavernousness of this mansion that was so big, the only thing I loved in the house disappeared inside it, um, never to be found. And, and a lot about, you know, rich wasps who can't emotionally connect to save their lives. Anyway, I just, that seed of lost my cat uh, unearthed so many kind of uncharted emotions uh, for me about my childhood. And then it, it I ended up um, being really, it, it ended up being a more cathartic book to write than Honor Girl, even though Honor Girl was actually my coming out book. So it was a very long answer, but often I find the answers to these questions are really long because it's it's rarely a simple answer of, well, I had this great idea and then my agent loved it and then we sold it at the end. So that's my very <laughs> if long, only. <laughs> but trying to be honest answer for where this book came from. Hmm. That's so fascinating. Well, I'm really interested in how an idea can come out of a place of resistance. And I mean, you called it cynicism, but yeah, it, it's, I guess, sometimes also you can resist you like the reason why you resist certain ideas is because they feel really close to home or they feel really kind of um difficult or you know I I can only imagine that writing a memoir is like I mean I've never written a memoir but I imagine that writing memoir is different to writing fiction in the sense that it's just so 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 close to home like there's nothing to hide behind um so yeah, I'm just maybe, do you think that maybe you had resistance because Honor Girl had been difficult to write or was Honor Girl really easy to write? I'm just interested in like the whole memoir thing and how you navigate that on an emotional level. Honor Girl was difficult to write and Honor Girl was not my idea either. It was my agent's idea. I have always felt called to be a fiction writer. That's always where my heart has been. And so you have fiction or prose fiction and graphic memoir, they're pretty much opposites, but I keep getting dragged back into graphic memoir, which I do find extremely challenging. It's partly because I'm not a trained artist, so I'm self-taught. So not only am I, have, am I telling these really personal stories, I'm doing it at the same time that I'm teaching myself how to draw trees or how to draw a cat, which I have not tried to draw a cat since I was seven years old. So <laughs> I think I was extremely resistant because I had considered Honor Girl to be kind of my ticket. It was like, all right, I did this. I did this publishing industry. I, I ripped my heart out and put it in a drawing and I gave it to you. And now I get to do whatever I want, right? <laughs> 
And it <laughs> that was not the case at all. It was like, no, we're going to need you to rip your heart out like eight more times. And then maybe, maybe you'll be allowed to do what you want afterwards. Um, so like I said, I, I was I was quite naive about, about publishing and I'm quite hard boiled and cynical about it now. <laughs> but again, you know, I, I can't regret it because because every time I do this, this heart ripping out motion, um, it enriches me as a person. So I do resist every damn time. Um, and then I'm always glad that I was forced to do it. Yeah, well, I actually think that's really important for people to hear because I think a lot of the times we think, well, I have to feel good about the work all the time or from the beginning I have to have this rush almost like I'm falling in love with this story idea or I'm falling in love with the book and then it has to feel good throughout otherwise it means that something's wrong um, or it's not working um, when actually yeah you can you can feel a lot of resistance you can feel very um, yeah cynical about something or negative about something and you could still it can still be so enriching and you can still make it work and you can make a beautiful piece of art so yeah that's what I have learned uh repeatedly and and the things that I've written that I felt really excited about and that it felt really easy are the things where when I sent you know 30,000 words to my agent he just he looked sent me an email back that was like there's nothing here this is garbage and I was like wait what I was really excited about this and this felt really easy it felt like it came so mm. naturally mm -hmm. and so I've kind of learned like if it feels too easy it's probably garbage <laughs> yeah that actually just happened to me like literally this week oh, did I it? sent something to my agent and she was like it kind of feels like I was like I'm having so much fun and she's like I can tell that you're having fun <laughs> But Okay, does anybody else hear the space? Oh, it just ended. What was that? Is there a, at, like, there's a lawnmower going on that just started or a, a leaf blower that just started at, in uh, my I realm. think that's going to be it. It's that's okay. Fine. We'll do the, we'll try to um, like do the odd or the noise reduction or whatever. Ho hopefully my, I have a, like a bullet mic and hopefully it's not picking it up so terribly, but yeah, I'm super annoyed. Hopefully it'll be done. It's okay. It sounds yeah. like a UFO is coming to land. So it's, it's, it's it, sounds like, it sounds like a droning, like uh, alien music or something. <laughs> You're waiting. <laughs> you, your ride is waiting. Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, will you talk some more? Like, I've heard you talk about this in a couple other interviews, um, but I greedily want to hear it again. Just um, like how Honor Girl, you wanted or you originally wrote it or conceived of it as being prose, right? And then did. was it your roommate slash soulmate slash best friend, Nico, who said, how about you try drawing? And you said, like, I don't draw I'm not an artist like you literally started drawing artistically it, it, like in this way like as an as an artistic creative yeah, I, I, I did it out of creative necessity because I could not figure out how to tell this story with words and so if you and and originally um the honor girl was just the subplot in my original webcomic. And the original autobiographical thing I wanted to write was about um, going to Hampshire College, which was this like 
really hippie college where it was it was clothing optional so it was just like <laughs> me this like southern girl from Atlanta showing up it was just like such culture shock and it was the best place on earth I loved it so much so I wanted to write um this autobiographical kind of funny story about it and I could not and if you go to my original website lonercomics.com you can see how quite rudimentary my original art was I would often forget to draw the necks of characters so the head would just be like bobbing on a pair of just square <laughs> pointed shoulders but I learned that I I really enjoyed I, I realized how much you can do with one little line to signify an eyebrow and to 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 get these pretty minute facial expressions out of basically stick figures. And I was like, whoa, this, I can speak volumes through a face, even if it's a really rudimentary face. So that, that did revolutionize my ability to express emotions, which it's, it's harder to do in words. I feel sorry for <laughs> writers who can't draw because you have only words to express emotions, to express, how many, how many ways can you describe how someone's like lip curls in one of those sort of ineffable expressions that doesn't really have a word, yeah. but you know it when you see it. And I'm just like, ha ha, I get to just draw it. Yes. Yeah. So it's so nice, but it's also incredibly um, difficult. And I often cry. Sure. <laughs> so sure. Well, even just thinking about how like we all use gifs and like images mm. and emojis to pepper our conversations to describe how we feel. Like instead of saying how I feel in a text, I'll pick a gif that like describes mm. how I feel. That's also sometimes like a pop culture reference on top of just being a gif. Like there's all of these other things that that if you think about it, can render prose quite flat because like you said, you're really only, you're, you're limited to just the physical sensations that or reactions that an emotion causes, unless you are brilliant with your prose and able to do or metaphors. Or just robotically describing every little facial, facial twitch. twitch. Yeah. yeah. Or, or just like every single feeling and how it's leading to the next feeling. And that, that can become quite robotic and I, I do wonder so now that you brought up gifts because I'm I'm sort of a Luddite and so as soon as you brought up gifts I was like but wait this is bad we have to save words like do you, <laughs> do you ever worry that a whole generation like is growing up only able to express themselves in gifts no because I remember doing research for um my gargoyle book which is set in like a an analog to medieval, like 1280 France. And so like reading a lot of, like looking at a lot of medieval texts and looking at the, uh, what are called the illuminations, the, the drawings, the doodles basically. And I'm sure we've all seen things like that online of like, there's lots of like penises being planted in a garden and being mm -hmm. hoed by like they're the most random weird things but <laughs> I remember learning about the snails the medieval snails there's like a whole bunch of illuminations of snails doing different things like especially charging into battle like these snail like illuminations of snails with like spears and stuff and at first I just thought it was like a random like oh yeah people in medieval times be drawing snails I guess <laughs> 
But it turns out like it was basically a medieval meme. Like you can date medieval, some medieval manuscripts very specifically to the decade and even the year and the region based on like what, like how many snails there are, or if there's snails present in these manuscripts. And it just made me think about like gifts and memes and pop culture references and quoting lines. I mean, I remember communicating with friends at, in high school in basically only Wayne's world quotes. I mean, that was just like, so I think of it as a larger communication form that has always been around that utilizes not just words, but references and, and pictures. And, um, I mean, Maggie, you know, that sounds very wise. Uh, I appreciate you quelling my reflexive (laughs) anxiety, (laughs) but also like you and I have talked about this, like in other, in other contexts before about my own kids who are 12 and five and who are very, very, very drawn to screen time and how resistant I am a lot of the time to just hand it over and let them um, be like throw them into this world that to me definitely sometimes feels like the opposite of books and literature. Um, And that's something I need to work on because it's uh, it's all a way of accessing story and and story is bigger than words. Hmm. But it's scary. I I agree. It's uh, it's I mean, frightening to, to to get back to my book, it's I story is bigger than words is kind of I don't think I could have told this story in prose. I couldn't have told Honor Girl in prose. I really to to kind of I could not have written um, these books in just words. I think I needed also the remove that drawing gives you when you draw yourself. It's easier to get out of your own head because you're looking at yourself instead of with prose seeing myself through the first person, seeing myself through um, the point of view of my memories. Instead, when I draw myself, I'm a third person and I can Mm. be more objective and I can be, I can be both more empathetic towards myself and harsher toward more judgmental towards myself. And it's that kind of tension between empathy and judgment that I, I really enjoy deploying against myself and my loved ones and my family members. (laughs) Yeah. That's well, so fascinating. Go ahead. Haley, did you have a question? No, I'm just did like looking at how that's so interesting. Like the idea of being, of being able to see yourself or step outside of yourself um, rather than being in your own point of view. It really changed things for me. It changed. I was a very, I was an incredibly secretive person um, before I wrote Honor Girl. I was also kind of a pathological liar. I had a habit of kind of protecting myself by both being secretive, but then creating the illusion of intimacy by confiding lies to people. Like I would make up like intimate things that I could tell people so that we could feel close, but they wouldn't be true. And after I wrote Honor Girl, it it was very revolutionary for me of like, I can just be real. I really can it's, I'm not going to die. I'm not, it's really going to be fine. So, and I think that that ability to kind of get outside myself was crucial in, in, in getting to that place in my personal life. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I know that, I know that both of your books are graphic memoirs. And so there's, um, a lot of it is grounded in the facts of what happened, but memoir is, 
different than autobiography, right? Like there's more flexibility and there's sort of the understanding to the reader, hopefully that some things are going to be squished together or uh, rewritten to be more like narratively interesting or what have you. Um, And I know you've spoken about this before that um, for you as a memoirist, it's more important to get the emotional truth correct than the actual truth truth, um, which is so interesting. But I wanted to talk about that in regards to the time period like that you grew up because your both of your books are so grounded in the setting details of what, like early 2000s, like late 90s and early 2000s. Very um, early 2000s. It was Honor Girls 2000 and then um, Lost Will Be Pieces 2002. Yeah. So there's Backstreet Boys posters um, in Lost Will Be at Peace. You have yourself, you have Maggie using Ask Jeeves, which... <laughs> Could I'm just saying like it could so easily have been Google like you could have just said it now or said it in like a general like whenever time period that would be more quote timeless Um, or you could have made up a band instead of Backstreet Boys that so what is it about that time period specifically that like like why include those details to ground it in the time that you actually grew up in instead of having it float in yes, time. I see, I see what you're saying. And I think, um, I think it, I, I wonder what you, what you two think about this. I think it's getting harder and harder to float because the context that we're in is, is so, it's like a chokehold. <laughs> increasingly. And I don't know if that's how I feel. I don't know if that has to do with the internet, but you know, the, the 2000s were my dad in the sense that, you know, it what we were coming out of the neoliberal and, and so much of lost Soviet pieces about my relationship with my dad. We're coming out of um, the neoliberalism of the nineties and moving back towards, it's the beginning of this kind of faux cowboy conservatism that has basically gone, you know, that we're, we're seeing now. And your dad's and, a judge, we should mention too. Like your dad is a democratic judge in the South. A democratic judge in the South. And that meant something very different in 2002 than it means now. Mm. You know, he was the last the last guy in who got appointed by Bill Clinton before the doors just slammed on Democrats um, for eight years during the Bush administration. And also before the South changed really crucially, you know, in the nineties, people forget that Georgia was a blue state for a really critical period of time. And that just after George Bush, it never went back. And well, and actually now, but now it might be flipping again. So it's fascinating for me to see that 20 years later, Georgia might go blue again. So the the politics of these things, I think, make it really difficult to just float a story because I also think that I didn't care about, I didn't really, I was pretty out of touch with politics. I was, I considered myself to be a member of the Green Party and I was really into Nader, even though I didn't (laughs) know anything. And kids today, they know everything. It's, or they think they do. (laughs) Right, right. They know more details, certainly, than I did at their age. Yeah. So I just think there's, there's a a type of childhood that doesn't, 
that was unique to 2002, where it's you have Ask Jeeves, and you have this sort of creeping feeling that something dark is taking over the political realm, but no one's particularly worried about it um, because the everyone's convinced that the you know that the sort of 90s colorblind. Um, the gay rich 90s are just going to prevail for all of time. So I'd, I'm not really answering your question that well because I find it a difficult question. And it's one that I hope to, I wanna actually try a floating, a more floating graphic memoir right now. So I've, I'm sort of also not answering this question well because I'm creeped out by you even asking it because to be true. I'm in your brain, Maggie. To be honest, like that's exactly what I'm sort of thinking about right now. And I'm like, how did Lindsay, how did, why did she ask that question? Well, it, yeah. but you're exactly, it's exactly, you're answering it exactly how I hoped you would, which is just like, there's a context for all of this. The fact that you are in this book, a lesbian in the South who feels like no one cares that you're out, even though that's so that's so significant. And yet no one in the book seems to care in the way that you want them to care. And you're also uh, the no daughter. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Which is wild. Cause you would think that it would have put a target on your forehead and it, it didn't exactly. and that, in the so way two, that two thousands was this incredibly strange time because it was post nineties, you know, it's, it's, I think will and grace was on the air so it's at this point where everyone's like, we're, we can't be overtly homophobic to you necessarily, yeah. but we can just, just ignore you. We can't sure. just pretend that you, we didn't hear you at all. Well, and that, that's, you, you know, you can't do that today. If a kid comes out to their parents today, they expect a response. Right. And in 2002, I realized very quickly I was not going to get a response and I just kind of let it, I just accepted that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So walk us through. So your agent says you should do this and you're resisting it. What is your, like, how do you, how did you start writing this book and what did your drafting process kind of look like? Well, I, so honor girl, I sold to Candlewick. It was half finished. And so we sold half the book with, with this one, it was two pages of just some doodles that was like, I lost my cat and it was so powerful. And I almost sent it to my agent as a joke because I didn't, I was kind of sabotaging it because I didn't want to write this book, but he was like, no, this is really good. <laughs> I was like, God damn it. <laughs> so it's, but it was basically just like a two page, um, you know, quite bullshitty description of I lost my cat and it was really powerful and it was really emotional. Um, and it's about family. And, mm. and that was it. And then I, you know, when when Candlewick was like, OK, cool, well, we'll buy it. I was like, now I have to write this thing. I have to actually make it powerful. Um, and I was kind of furious at myself. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so where do you so where do you start when you know suddenly you have to write this book and it has to be powerful and it's about family and it's about your cat? I knew I think where it really started where I really started to get excited. Um, I took a really long bath, like a three hour bath, and just listened to Enya and drank some wine. 
And then I remember it just sort of hit me. I even said out loud, it's about ghosts. It's about being haunted. It's about your childhood haunting you because your childhood is dead. And as soon as I realized that, I was like, oh, I actually can do this and I know what I need to do. So I think it was once a, I sort of linked the missing cat to this kind of haunted house aesthetic with, you know, this feeling of mourning your childhood and your childhood being literally dead and you can't revive it. Um, that's when things really started to click and I actually became excited about the book and I became excited about using different colors because Honor Girl is a very pastel book. And I was excited that in this book, I was like, ooh, I wanna use a lot of reds and there's gonna be a lot of black and there's gonna be clouds. And I want it to have that, I want it to feel like March and April in Georgia, which is like a really disgusting time because it's humid and all the, and there's worms everywhere because it's always raining and it's like hot, but cold and you're uncomfortable all the time and your feet are always sweaty. And I was just like, the, I, I wanted, I want all of this to come through on the page. And so then I actually got excited. A lot of cool. the, a lot of the art in Lost Soul Be at Peace is a lot more abstract as well, rather than like straightforward, what you think of as I guess like comic style, like just panels with people talking and and in, yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I say I say comic, meaning like very in a very largely general yes sense. Um, was that part of the like original conception as well? Did you know that you would be experimenting more with your the form that your pictures were taking? And how, like, was that scary? <laughs> it wasn't scary because it's what actually motivated me and excited me because there were a couple of dream sequences in Honor Girl and I, I had a lot of fun making those. And so I thought I, I want to go further with dreams. And I've always had weird sleep complexes, sleepwalking, night terrors, insomnia. I've always had like these bizarre, um, sleep issues. So I wanted to capture that. Um, and like, I just, I remember having this experience where I woke up from a dream screaming my head off and the house was so big that no one, my parents, no one could hear me. And it was very scary of just realizing like this, I don't actually want to be in a house this big. I, and I always had this wish, this is probably gonna sound obnoxious, but I always envied my friends who lived in apartments because their parents were like right there. And it always seemed so cozy and it seemed like full house. And I always wanted that. And it was just this feeling of like, this house is creepy. It's too big. No one can hear me scream. That's wild, but it, it makes sense. And um, compared to, I mean, obviously just in the narrative in Honor Girl, you're at camp. And so you're surrounded by people like surrounded. you cannot have some time alone unless you go off into the woods. The last will be a piece. Uh, you isolate yourself. Um, but I wanted so to ask. You pointed that out. That is that is yet a, one of the it does make the books really distinct from one another. It's a feeling of like girlish surroundedness versus just then I go home and it's totally alone. Well, 
I wanted to ask you too about structuring Lost Soul Be at Peace because Honor Girl, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like the narr- the actual narrative structure or the outline of the story or like the the arc or whatever, however you want to think about it, the plot, I guess, um, is a lot more, I think, straightforward in that like you're at camp, you're having feelings, you're, you talk to the counselor, Denimois, like it's, it's sort of straightforward in that way, but Lost Will Be at Peace, especially in the first like quarter of the book, you're opening so many doors. You've got the cat, you've got depression, you've got I'm a lesbian, no one cares. You've got your relationships with your parents. You've got um, Bob showing up at your house to, and, and introducing this idea that your father as a judge is vulnerable to violent attacks from you know, people that he's tried, uh, who are disgruntled. And so you, and, and you've got this big isolated house and you've got the, the, the guns and you've got the ghosts showing up in the coyote. Like you have all of these different threads that you're just throwing at us. And then the rest of the book is about sort of weaving them together. And, and then you've got this really concentrated knot, um, where it all sort of ties together towards the end. So structurally it feels very different. So, drafting something like that and it's like just with words and prose is already hard enough but then when you're adding in pictures and panels and and like how does how does the outlining process or like how does the structuring process for lost will be a piece work yeah and 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 thank you for saying um i'm i appreciate that you think they came together so well i think for me you're like how do you structure something like that? And for me, that is the structure. So I see all of the, I'm, I'm a very theme-based writer. That, that is what I, I, I care about character, obviously, but the themes, if I don't have the themes, I can't do anything. So in terms of, I see like the themes almost as their own characters, I guess, which I've heard people describe place as character, but I see theme as character as well. So the development of these themes, when I can see that, then I just follow it and write the story to support it. Like, it's like, okay, I need the op- this opening chapter where we establish, you know, there have been threats. You know, my, my dad did have a colleague whose husband was murdered out of a retaliation for a, a verdict um, that they did not like. So it's this this feeling of like, I think this feeling of lack of safety. And so it's like, okay, well, I need to establish that right away. And so just the the scenes themselves always following the needs of the theme. But then, you know, you have to do a little bit of witchcraft because you never want it to feel that way. You never want it to feel like this scene is just serving a thematic function. This is just moving the theme forward. This is just illuminating X, Y, Z point. Like you never want it to feel that way. So I think that's where the real... Um, the real black magic comes in. But yeah, I just follow that thread. The real not. skill. I mean, it's skill. You can call it magic and black magic, but you're <laughs> you're good at it, Maggie. Oh, it's you. a skill yeah. that you have. Absolutely. Because it doesn't ever feel like can... you're being spoon-fed the theme ever, ever. Well, yeah, thank you. It I'm, I'm, it's really important to me to never make the reader feel that way. So that's something that's with me every single step of the way. My two basic rules are I'm never going to waste the reader's time 
if there's something I can show, you know, in in one line, I'm not going to show it in five paragraphs. I'm never going to I'm never going to drag something out that I can show succinctly. And I'm never going to treat the reader um, like an idiot who can't get it on their own. So those are those are my two credos. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love Kaylee, that. You were well, I wanted to ask just like a really kind of stupid question. Well, just a question <laughs> from someone who like, I don't, I don't draw. I'm not an illustrator. I would never conceive of writing a graphic novel. I would, I don't think in images or anything like that. So I just want to know for, for our listeners, for people who don't, who also probably don't know this, like how, how do you draft a graphic novel? So I guess the first thing that's kind of different is that you sell the novel based on a couple of pages to the publisher, not the, you don't have to write the entire thing. And then, so it's kind of like nonfiction in a way. And then how do you, once you have that starting point, like how, what does the drafting actually look like? Are you making rough sketches and panels or are you writing just like the dialogue out or like, how do you actually do it? I basically just, I have a word doc where I write all the dialogue or if there's, you know, uh, panels that don't have dialogue, I just describe like what's in it. And then I do an incredibly ridiculously rough draft where I organize it in the panels. And usually that takes two or three goes to get that right. And often I'll, I'll be drawing the, I'll be, I'll be ready to draw. And then I'll realize the flow of this doesn't work. Usually what I realize is that I've taken too long. I've given like six panels to express or something that can be expressed in two. And so then I have to go back and, you know, because I'm always about efficiency and I'm always about like never drag anything out again. Don't waste the reader's time. So, but yeah, I, I do start with just a word doc that's incredibly disorganized and that's just kind of bullet points of dialogue. And it's Hmm. very messy and it's not elegant at all but it's just making sure I have everything in my head technically written down so I don't forget it yeah and so and so when you're doing like the rough panels is that kind of like your outline so you have to get that do you feel like you have to get that exactly right before you can actually start drawing yes I do so I consider my kind of my word doc full of of dialogue and ideas my outline And then when I'm doing my rough drafts of, it's just page by page by page. And I do have to get it. I do, I always um, out, or I wouldn't call it outline. I I rough sketch two pages at a time because you know, with Mm. with the graphic memory of the two pages, they need to look good together. They need to flow. Right. And I always, you know, a little trick I have is on the bottom right-hand corner. I always want something that makes the reader want to turn the page. So it's Ah. like, I'm always thinking about that, about, well, what's going to be in that bottom right-hand corner that makes the reader want to turn the page? So I basically sketch out two pages at a time. Um, yeah. I don't I don't take it further than that because I don't know if things are going to change. Um, so I just, I have my, my document outline and then it's just two pages at a time um, until I get to the end. Hmm. And do you have to, as a graphic novelist, are you thinking in terms of, because I always think in terms of word count, like it's it's a middle grade novel, so it should be roughly this length. For a graphic novel, are you thinking about like it has to be this number of pages? No, and and luckily, you know, I've 
I haven't had to do things like if you're doing, you know, if, if you've been hired to do like the babysitters club graphic novel, mm-hmm. you have to have that page count in mind and you have to be incredibly organized and know how long everything's going to take. I don't think I could do that. I think that the way that I work and that I feel very lucky to be able to work is I just start and then it's over when it's over. And I think right, Honor yeah. Girl is like 270 pages. Lost Will Be at Peace is 180. Um, the thing I'm starting on right now, I honestly don't know if it's going to be 120 pages or 400 pages. Even though I have the whole thing outlined, I can't see it. So again, I'm just about two pages at a time. And anything more than that, I I just shrug and get overwhelmed. So yeah. That's something I have not had to deal with is actually predict predicting how long it's going to be. Yeah. And then also just on like a really practical level, like what are you using? What are your tools? Like what kind of paper do you draw on? And do you use pencil? Are you drawing with a, like, do you have a favorite pen? Oh, I do. I have, <laughs> so <laughs> each, each time I do the, every time I do art, I get better because I use better tools. Arna girl kind of looks like crap because I was accidentally using the wrong paper for the entire book. I was using manga paper. I was using watercolors on manga paper. And now I use actual watercolor paper. And, you know, it's just, this is the sort of thing that is, that is just obvious to anyone who goes to art school but when you're self-taught I just had no idea what I was doing so even though sometimes I feel sort of embarrassed by how bad honor girl looks I'm just like that's part of the process and that's part of what makes it you know authentic in my eyes is that it truly just it was what I could do and it was what I did do and so I can't I can't regret that um, I used the wrong paper for the whole thing I feel like that's sort of part of its charm to me um, but yeah, now I have um, particular watercolor pencils that I use. I find watercolors too overwhelming, um, too difficult. I have I use only micron pens. I use, you know, this a particular eraser that I can't live without. So oh, over the years, I've figured out what I like to work with. But it was it was very difficult at first figuring out what tools to use, and I made a lot of mistakes. Hmm. not mistakes we'll just call them choices choices yeah but it's a lot of choices but I find that so inspiring honestly Maggie because I think that it just goes to show when you want to make something you just do what you can to make it and you you put things like you'll use duct tape you'll use like it's like you're just figuring it out as you go and using the tools that you have and what's available to you and I think that's so awesome I don't know I just think that's so so cool well thank you I appreciate you putting it that way because I I often (laughs) am sort of deprecating and I put myself down and I'm like god I was so lazy in honor girl I had this one tree that I drew well and I hated all my other trees so I just photoshopped it on a lot of the panels because I was like this is one tree that looks good and looking back I'm like god that was so lazy but it was really just like it was all I could do at the time. Um, it was it was too much to try and replicate that tree, and I was so proud of it. Um, so I, I I appreciate that. Yeah, so, I, I so don't much of that is lazy at all. I think no. it's resourceful and really, resourceful. Really That's a much cool. better word than than lazy. It is. Well, I think it's really cool. Yeah. Sorry, Lindsay, you go. No, I just was going to say so much of every kind of creative 
medium, writing included, is about copying and pasting and and um, stealing and reframing things and using. I mean, who among us have have not like gone dumpster diving in the cut files of things, trying to find like, oh God, I need a sentence that can do this. Is there anything I already wrote <laughs> that I can just like lift out so I don't have to come up with something new? Like we all do it, but it it must feel much more tangible. Um, with art, <laughs> with point, visual like I, art. I, I do have a Word document full of really good sentences that I had to delete from other projects. Yes. And I don't feel any sort of, you know, shame or embarrassment at repurposing those. No. But yeah, there is something yeah. about, about art where it feels more like cheating or something. But mm. I agree. It's, it's, it's just part of the process. And, you know, I, 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 I love what you said, Haley, about like, when you want to create something, you will find a way. And, um, I agree. How much, how much experimenting do you do with new mediums or new tools or new methods with your, not much. Well, I, I, it's, I, I love that you like have your stuff that you love. When I find something that works, I'm like, that works. And I just do it. And Every once in a while, if I want to try something new, like for a project recently, I wanted to figure out how to do stars better and how to how to do dark skies. So I had to kind of make it an event. And I was like, all right, here's the event where I'm going to learn a new skill and I'm going to sit down. And I'm going to do it because for me, it's I get sort of scared learning new things. I think a lot. I, I envy people who just have this natural curiosity and courageousness to learn new things but I feel more like I I like what I know and I don't want that to be disturbed and I don't I and I think part of it has to do with I don't want to learn anything better because then I'll look back on honor girl and I and I'll be like god damn I wish I'd known that then so it's like easier to stay in your bubble of ignorance but I'm really trying not to see life that way and to see that there, there's value in what we create at all, you know, at all the moments of our progression as artists. And so you don't have to be afraid to learn and you don't have to be afraid to grow because it doesn't mean that the person you were before is inferior. Um, yeah. And I don't know if that makes sense, but it's kind of like this protective shell of just like I don't want to be a better person because then that means I'm currently not good enough and then it becomes this whole like psychological breakdown and it's just like oh my god I'm just trying to draw learn how to draw a cat better it should not result in me having a mental breakdown about my personal worth but often that's how it is for artists raising your standards is work and then you and then you Mm -hmm. when you know you can do better yeah. Then you feel like you have to all the time too. And that's, mm-hmm. I, I think too, like you were saying, like some people are comfortable learning new things. I think partly because some people are comfortable being vulnerable and looking stupid while they're learning new things. And some people are not as well. And I think a lot of people um, are actually more open-mindedness is considered a value, but I actually think it's more a, thought system. It's a state of mind. And I actually think I'm fairly closed minded in that I'm a little resistant to new things. And, you know, people who have a more naturally open minded mentality 
they can just adapt and they can and so they're not afraid of new things because they just soak it up and and adapt and if you have a naturally more closed-minded mentality you're you're always kind of like on the defensive towards new things i'd say you have and i don't think one integrity is better or worse than another i think we often say like open-minded people are good and closed-minded people are bad but it's really just a way of thinking and most people can't really don't really have much control over the way they think so it's no use beating oneself up yeah yeah well i think that also it doesn't really matter if you're trying to learn and grow and learn new things or if you're not the fact is if you write a book that book is always going to be a kind of time capsule for who you were when you wrote the book who you were when the book was published what your skill levels were, whether you're writing graphic novels or picture books or novels or whatever you're writing and drawing, it's just, yeah, it's going to be reflective of that particular moment in your life. And yeah, it's kind of like getting a tattoo and, you know, people always say, well, you have to, you know, you have, you have to like really think about what kind of tattoo you're going to get because what if you regret it or later on you won't like it or something. And I remember, um, talking to my husband about this because he has loads of tattoos and um and he was like no it's the whole point of a tattoo is that it's it's like representative of that moment that you got the tattoo yeah maybe you will outgrow it maybe you you will become a person who doesn't like that tattoo anymore or who outgrows it but that's like kind of the whole point and that was like such a like shift for me and how to think about that and I think books are similar it's like the book because the book isn't going to change. The book stays the same and you change. Gosh, no? that is so, that's so beautiful. And I, I really like that you said that. And it, it reminds me of this, of this quote I heard that was attributed to Marilyn Monroe, but who knows if she actually said it, but it was something like, I will die with no regrets because even if I make mistakes, I'll always know that I did what I wanted to do in the moment. So that sort of attitude of like, even if I look back, I can't, it's, it's what I did then. And it's so yeah, yeah good for your husband. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I love this idea of books being tattoos. That's, I think, especially in this culture now where the kind, where a lot of, you know, sort of political standards have, have changed rapidly. I think a lot of authors look back on their past look, their past works with a sort of embarrassed horror because it, their work may contain some politically incorrect things. Mine certainly does. And, you know, it's, it's all about just remember, you know, going back to Lindsay's question about the context, just remembering that these books are tattoos and they're a product of their time and they're a product of ourselves at that time. And just yeah. having a little more space for that reality instead of an expectation that everything is, should be perfect at all times and should have been perfect at all times. Yeah, exactly. Because the other thing is like books, like people are never perfect. Like that's also the thing that you have to reconcile yourself with when you publish something is, you know, it's never going to be perfect and you're still going to publish it. I don't, it's just like. At a certain yeah. point you have to say, I guess you it's let done. Go. Yeah, it's you done. You let it go. And you know, you know, it's like some people are going to hate it. Some people are going to be like, why was why was this about a cat? I hate books about cats. And you're just like, sorry, <laughs> read another book. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you revise? Like at what point? Let me back up. At what point do you bring in 
your agent or your editor or send something finished to them. Because revising a graphic novel must be different than revising a prose novel because words are so cheap. Like you can just, (laughs) and pictures are not. Yep. Yeah. It's pretty much hell. Um, With Honor Girl, I wrote 70 pages that had to just be thrown in the trash because they were so bad. Oh my God. And I just did (sighs) it. But I learned from that. And this, the, my next draft of Honor Girl, not to brag, but I basically just sort of nailed it because I had learned from the mistakes of the aborted draft. And I was just like, all right, this is how it, this is how it has to go. And Lost will be a piece too. I, I've actually found um, that with graphic memoirs ever since the, de- the debacle of the 70 pages in the garbage with Honor Girl, I've had to revise them less because I actually think I know what I'm doing more with mm. comics and with art, which is so bizarre to me because I don't think of myself as an artist. I never intended to be a graphic novelist, but I think I know what I'm doing more. Whereas my fiction always undergoes like 17 revisions. There's, it's always a structural mess. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I've been, I've been lucky because revision is hell with, with comics, but I haven't had to do it that much. Um, Cause I've just been able to kind of feel the vibe of it. Thankfully. <laughs> So do you, do you create the whole thing and then send it to your editor or are you kind of sending them acts or like chunks? I usually send about a chapter at a time. So I'll send, you know, the first chapter and then when I, when I pitch it in general, it'll just be a sort of general thing, more about, more about themes because I'm obsessed Mm. with themes. And then I'll send like a chapter at a time and usually with only one or two pages fully inked and colored. And in color and then the rest mm. just pencil mm. so the the chapters look that I send that I'll send my agent will look very messy I'm wondering about writing memoir writing things that are from your own life because I've always wanted you to write a memoir Lindsay <laughs> I know I know <laughs> that would be amazing I I know what it would be I talked to my editor about it in Portland I know Good gonna be rough it's gonna be a rough read uh it'll be a rough write too I no, promise I, you that it will be well I just I I just kept saying isn't that funny can't you see how this would be really funny and she just was <laughs> looking at me like Lindsay I'm so sorry you had to live through that and I'm like no but it could be so funny right like it's anyway no, lol lol <laughs> like I want to write it in that tone of like ah, can you believe it I love <laughs> I did this um No, I wanted to ask you about, sorry, let me think about how to phrase this because some of this is coming from me getting to know you better, Maggie, and knowing that you are a highly emotional person who is drawn to drama and angst and high emotions and lifetime movies and things that are like dialed up to 11 when it comes to the like melodrama. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's safe to say about oh, yeah. you, I think, um, which and I think I'm, is I'm definitely the friend you can call at 2 a.m. to complain about your boyfriend for two hours. Like yes. I will listen to my friends in their in the throes of their breakup. I have my I have this unending appetite for that. I won't help you move. I won't help you like I won't help you do that, but right. I will help you with your breakup like 
you eat that up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I love that it's not just like your own emotions that you are wanting to like put out into the world. You're also like, no, give me yours. Like I want (laughs) your drama and like you seek it out, which I love. Um, but how much do you leave for yourself when you comes to writing memoir? What do you mean by how much do I leave? Like, like how much? I don't, I don't just mean like how much is accurate and how much is made up or fudged to like protect people or to like narratively manipulate things. So it's more interesting. I don't just mean on a technical level, but not much, but emotionally and for you as a person and not just for you creating what is ultimately a product that is going to be consumed by other people, like out of, out of preservation as you're writing and revising and, and, and putting it into like turning it into this product, how much do you need to leave for yourself? Cause I'm sure it's different for everybody. The things that I leave for myself are, I will put almost everything on the table, but I do to be perfect, to be truly honest, a lot of the cringe stays with me. Like I was cringier in honor girl and in lost soul, like in Lost Soul, I had a, during that actual real life time period, I had a guitar and I played it very badly. I wrote angsty songs on my guitar and I was just like, I'm put, I'm, I don't need to put that. I'm not putting that out there. I don't, <laughs> you can't make me like, I have to, I, I have to keep some of the embarrassment to myself. So it's mostly about that. Um, and then additionally with memoir I think I'll be interested to see what you do with your memoir because I've had a lot of like OMG crazy things happen to me and I think if I tried to write them as a memoir it wouldn't work at all so what I've generally focused on so far are like fairly small but crucial emotional events whereas like these more gossip girlish like drama filled things that have happened to me you know like events where you're you end up at 4 30 in the morning in a greyhound station sobbing like that stuff I haven't really dared to touch because I haven't figured out how to marry the sort of uh acute subtle emotional truth with an actual like wild event so I'll be I'll probably learn from you um how to do that perhaps. But yeah, in general, um, what, what I leave is, is the cringe, like precisely how bad my hair looked. Um, just like precisely like, I remember, you know, there's that Bob Dylan song. That's like the times they are changing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When I tried to come out to my parents, I sang that song and I'm just like, I'm not writing that. I'm not going to write about that because oh my I God, that's that my cutest thing had to I've ever heard and listen to me butcher this Bob Dylan song <laughs> while attempting to tell them I was a lesbian. And I get that that is like, that could be like a very fun chapter that could be very funny, <laughs> but there's some things where it's just like, that is not going to be the content. I'm not, yeah. not going to write that story. I well, and that, that steers amazing. things in a different direction 
emotionally than probably where you wanted it to be, even though, oh, I well, and, and that, I love but that. <laughs> I'm just thinking about, I'm thinking about Finn, my daughter, who's almost 12, who, um, her thing right now is borrowing my phone to record TikToks, but they're not really TikToks. They're just little videos she makes because uh, I don't let her make TikToks yet. She's only 12 for God's sake. Um, but so she'll, and she'll just record them in little, like little videos on just like my iPhone. And then later, like my husband and I go through and watch them and they're just like, we can see her processing the world and like mimicking things she's seen. And it's so endearing. And also I know so cringy. Um, anyway, well, I, but like how much you have to have so much empathy for your 16 year old self, but your editor also has to have some empathy. Like how does, how do you, between you and your editor, how do you balance while you're revising something that's so personal? How do you balance the empathy for this real version of you that existed and (laughs) felt these things, um, versus like the, the need to craft a character and like be brutally honest about like, okay, this is boring or this is <laughs> now, now this character is being quote unlikable or inaccessible or whatever. Like, and do you ever, is it ever difficult to hear your editor talk about <laughs> this past version of you that maybe you're protective of? Yeah. the Well, I'm, I'm lucky in that. Um, so people might not, people who aren't in the, business publishing business yet might be surprised to know that um, at least in my experience and I know in the experience of lots of other authors most of the editing happens with your agent not the actual editor I don't know if this is your experience Lindsay but it's it's certainly I do all my editing I go 18 rounds with my agent and then by the time it gets to the editor they're like yeah this is good this is done we'll publish it so I interesting I I I feel like I've heard the opposite but but I wonder, is that like a, is that even for your novels, mm-hmm. your prose novels? Yep. Well, yeah, damn. my agent and I go like a hundred rounds before it gets to the editor. And I don't know if that's normal or not, but I know I've, I've heard it from other um, sources. So maybe it's kind of a grab bag, whether, yeah. whether you get like a highly editing agent or not, but my yeah. agent is highly editory, editorial and um, we're just, I feel very lucky that we met when we were young and he knows me and we are, it's like working with a friend. And I don't think that would be possible, you know, to have someone I didn't intensely admire and who I know he understands me on this deeply human level, not just a writer level. So we're able to have that relationship. And the only time I really remember it being, there was a moment where he was like, Maggie can't do that. The Maggie in the book can't do that. And that's when um, in real life, the honor girl me, do you hear a cat? Is it a cat or is it yeah, my child? Okay. My cat, okay. My cat is cat. just screaming. That's fine. I love that. That's fine. <laughs> sure it wasn't He's adding some extra <laughs> spice. <laughs> but the, the me in honor girl or the me in real life was a little less um there was there was a little more like could let me phrase this well there we were we were not very safe with our guns at in our there was no safety there were no adults sure and we would kind of just like point them at each other and (laughs) 
I especially, you know, was always like pointing guns at people. Yeah. And we, that was sort of how we would goof off with each other. And Steven was just like, you, the, the honor girl cannot be pointing her gun at people. Yeah. And I was right. like, oh, <laughs> this is a difference between the real life Maggie and, and the Maggie who is the honor girl. And that's how he yeah. put it too, was the honor girl cannot point her gun at people. And I was like, okay, I get yeah. it. Um, so you didn't see that. You didn't see us like waving guns around wildly. Yeah. Um, but that, but for the most part, I'm pretty good at, at self-editing. I think I'm pretty good at, I think at understanding, um, where the boundaries between a likable and an unlikable character are and how to play with that. Um, but yeah, to, to, in short, um, you had just have to be really close with the person you're editing with. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And can you, um, we're probably going to have to start like ending off soon, but can yeah. you talk to us a little bit, just a little bit about like blending things that really happened. And this is a memoir about your life, about your relationship with your dad, but it also has this magical element, which I found so, so beautiful and so fascinating like, how does that, I mean, did you just feel like that's the only way you can tell the story? You said you had this moment in the bath where you're going like, it's about haunted, hauntedness, it's about ghosts. Um, but how do, yeah, how do you feel, I guess, about like that, about the blending of kind of fact and magic? Speculative I, memoir, I've heard that term yeah, used. Speculative yours. Speculative memoir. I said speculative memoir. Speculative memoir. Oh, I, would, I love that. Which sounds like a paradox, right? Like it sounds like an or like exactly. a, an oxymoron, but it's exactly what you did. Well, I I really just I wanted to use all of those elements to capture the state of my mental health at the time, and this mm-hmm. kind of feeling that I was living in a constant nightmare just because of my own loneliness and this feeling of alienation from everyone, this feeling of having no idea what to do with my identity, or I was doing terribly in school. And just, so you, again, just going back to, for me, all of those elements were just about illuminating an emotional truth. And if they hadn't served that purpose, they wouldn't have needed um, to be there. So it's more about mood creation than the surrealness itself for me. I guess I just, I can't take it too seriously because then I start um, having a genre breakdown and then it's too confusing. So I just kind of am like, "Mm, la la la, no, no, no. We're going to have a coyote in the house. Just don't worry about it. Yeah, or instead yeah. of instead of several have a ghost in the attic. Well, yeah, or uh, well, and yeah. that that functions so well. And like, I guess, slight spoilers ahead for readers who haven't, um, for listeners who haven't read it yet. But rather than having five extended conversations with your father over a long period of time, where you kind of get to know him, instead you meet the ghost of him as a child. Like it's so yeah. functional. So narratively mm. and, and emotionally it's so power so much more powerful that way well thank yeah, you especially I mean, that's, because it that felt like the only honest way to do it because mm-hmm. he was we it, he was such an kind of impenetrable figure made of stone and yeah. 
the idea that I could have just sat down and gotten to know him, it took two decades to really get to know him. And we're very close now, but he was a stranger to me in high school. And I, I also, you know, this book is really important to me as well to as sort of an example for young people of how a relationship can seem broken, especially your relationship with your parents. And sometimes it's, it's kind of, your parent isn't going to do anything to repair it. Sometimes as the child, it's on you to be vulnerable and open up to them. And sometimes it works. And I was saying this to Sarah Czar on her podcast, um, This Creative Life. And she was like, okay, well, I'm not going to be vulnerable and open up to my dad. He was an alcoholic <laughs> abuser who ruined my childhood. And I was like, okay, that's totally fair. Enough. fair. Different. Yeah. You can't be, you know, don't, don't take this advice. Um, it's, it's about using your own judgment about like, is this an abusive relationship or not? And, and I, on Goodreads, I recall there were a couple of reviews about like, oh, this is weird. Maggie's parents are abusive. It's about an abusive relationship with her father. And I was just like, I don't think it was abusive. I think. And so I, you know, it was worth it for me to try and to like kind Mm -hmm. of open up, even though it was incredibly difficult. Um, So I would encourage, I think there's just like a lot of narratives around right now about like, cut people out of your life, just cut them out. If they're not good (laughs) enough, block them. And it's like, that can be empowering. But I think if you take that, if you just block everyone, you're not going to have any relationships. So mm-hmm. I want to sort of, you know, touch young people's hearts a little bit and be like, okay, t- take a second look at your parents. Can y'all figure this out? Can you be like vulnerable and learn how to be friends? And and yeah. for some kids, the answer may be no. But I hope that for a lot of kids, the answer might be, might be yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. Turns out parents are, are people and like the they roles, they are people. And like the roles of parent and child, <clears throat> excuse me, especially as you grow older, they shift and change. And it's, it's weird how elastic they can be and how mm. like, I I've had to really come to see my dad, not as my dad and I'm his child, just because of the way our relationship has changed since I've become an adult. And yet spending a week at Disneyland last week with all of my siblings and my mom, we all just turned into kids again around her and we're probably really buggy to her, but like those, (laughs) those dynamics shift and change. And they're, I think they're, you do such a good job in this book um, and in honor girl of just like pinpointing those moments when you're a kid and you realize like your parents aren't perfect and that they're people and you're just like, Oh, well, okay. Whoops. They're not like, and they're not going to reach out to me. That moment of realizing like, oh, there, there is this divide between us and they're not going to reach out to me. It's kind of like, I have to reach out to them. And that feels weird because I'm the kid. Why should I be having to, why am I having to crack my dad open like an egg? Shouldn't he be trying to get to know me? But just sort of accepting like he's a, he's a shy introvert. He's not going to get to know me. I have to get to know him. And also like. Sometimes those boundaries between parent and child are there for like, I don't want to be friends with my kids until they're older because Mm. I feel like I need to provide the security of being an authority figure to them, not like a staunch authority figure. Like I, 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 I'm a soft friend. You're their only mom. Exactly. Like I, somebody need, like, I can't be their friend and also be like, you need to shower. You're stinky. Go get in the shower. (laughs) Like that's, that's not what a friend would 
do, I think, to some. Well, maybe they would. I don't know. But you do it so beautifully. Well, thank you. You do. Really, you do it and so I, I appreciate so much that you picked, you picked this book to talk about because as I you know, as I said earlier, this is the book of, of my four that I've published. This is the one that's that's the most important to me. And it's the one that I'm the most proud of. Um, so I was like, oh, well, of course, it's the one that that Lindsay zeroed in on with her like emotional IQ of a thousand. Well, yeah, it's special. It really is. And it's different. Mm-hmm. And it's I wonder, like you've talked a little bit already about the publication, but it, instead, could we talk about like what is it like what happens when your family reads your graphic memoirs like what happens like what yeah. did your dad what did your dad say when he read it or did, or has he read it because maybe he hasn't he's read it and and he's always been i i have a lot of respect for personal freedom it's very important to me and i got that from him so he's always been like i'm never going to tell you what to do i'm never going to tell you what to write it's been cute hearing him when he talks about it to other people and he's saying like oh you should read my daughter's book you know, he always says, I don't look, I don't look so good at the beginning, but I think I'm a little redeemed by the end. And it's, it's very, like, say like, I don't, I don't come off so well, but, um, Oh, that's adorable. It's it's really sweet. And, you know, my, my mom is much more annoyed with my career. Um, she's much more annoyed that I talk about real people. She hates it, but they're both so achievement oriented. Mm. If a if a book happens at the end, then all sins are forgiven. If like <laughs> happens, it's okay. Wow. <laughs> and sometimes but- I wish that, and and you know, I, I I know that I get a lot of I'm very achievement oriented and I, I understand that I've internalized that certainly from my parents. And I think it can be a good thing and a bad thing, but um, they do, they do give me a lot of space since it's since it's a book and they're they're so proud that I made a book. They're like, okay, fine. The fact that it's an it's an embarrassing book will give you a pass. <laughs> I can't remember if I've heard you talk about this before, but do you feel like because you've written two fiction prose novels? That sounds very redundant, but <laughs> prose novels, fiction yeah. prose novels, yeah, that are that are mm-hmm. like quote unquote, a hundred percent fiction, but do you feel like there's more clues about who you are in your straight fiction than your graphic? Like, are those, do those feel transparently more? Oh, like there's lots of clues. Yeah. There yeah. Lots <laughs> of clues. And I just think you it's, know, in, the, it's interesting. The, those books are sort of this, they're just like this simmering thing. And I'm like, you know, there, there's lots of clues and, and they're, kind of like an, an unfound treasure, you know, there's yes. un, so it's I mean, that's, of course that's strange that. truths and strange lies. Wait, mm-hmm. which one's first? Strange, strange truth. truth first then strange lies. Okay. Yeah. I, it's just interesting to think about um, the honesty or authenticity or whatever of writing memoir versus fiction, because I just remember like first meeting my husband, um, knowing that like, he would read my books and watching him read Hour of the Bees for the first time and feeling so like, oh my God, embarrassed. Just because, even though it was straight fiction, but just like, oh my God, he's going to, this is, 
like I'm showing him exactly who I am and what I yes. think about things. It's so like, exposing. This is what uh, th- he's going to be like. This is what she thinks is like romantic, like ooh or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And you're just like it. It is yes. because it's like with a memoir. It's like all right, this is what happened, and these are the lessons I learned. Whereas with with fiction, it's this is what I imagined. This is what mm. I made from nothing. Yes, this and like here's I the made. things I valued. Yes. Mm. I chose these things. <laughs> I chose these things. I created this whole world for these people to live in and talk to each other. And this is what I made them say in my little fantasy world. Yes. It's very exposing. It's so funny. It is. It's oh. very funny. You can't you can't hide no matter what you write. No. You're gonna be in there. Yeah, people no, are I, gonna know about it. <laughs> I'm so glad that you brought this up because now that I'm thinking about it. You know, I always, people always talk about memoir and I always sort of parrot it back to them that memoir is so vulnerable and I'm so exposed. But actually with memoir, I always have the cover of, it's just what happened. This is just yeah. what happened. I'm just telling the story. Yeah, you Whereas can't plot fiction, a memoir in the same way. Yeah, 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 yeah that's that- true. Like I chose to put this in. I, I made a conscious this. choice. I made these <laughs> choice, especially with Strange Truth. If you read that and it's like, I made these choices, you'll be like, oh <laughs> my God. It's so funny. And something about writing fiction too always makes me like, not just I chose this, but I'm purporting to be an expert in fiction, <laughs> like in creating a story in a way that- Oh yeah, I, there's a, there's a, a you're not reporting about yeah. like, I'm the curator of this story. I, I am the master of this world. Like yeah. absolutely. Very yeah. pretentious. Why do we do this, you guys? Because <laughs> it's fun. We are pretentious. Cause, yeah, because it's we fun. Are, yeah. We are. Because what and, else can yeah. we do? Yeah. Is there is there anything else you want to talk about as far as like the acquisition and publication that was of note or that's um, part of Candlewick Press based here in Boston is the best. Um, they have so much respect for creators. They're when when you know, I was first, when my agent was first um, pitching Honor Girl, there were several different publishers who said, we really love this, but will she hire a professional artist? And Candlewick was, Candlewick said, no, absolutely not. Part of the soul of the book is the art. And it's just like, yeah, any, any aspiring um, middle grade novelist, graphic novelist, go to Candlewick first, um, because I just think, they're just wonderful people and and very gay people. <laughs> they're very gay. <laughs> they, they are, yeah, and they're the they're very open to weird, different mm-hmm. things, and that's what mm-hmm. makes them stand apart. Absolutely. Yeah. In the marketplace, not to be all gross about it, but <laughs> their books stand out for a reason. Yeah, they do, and they're so good at. They've been my godsend because they their focus is getting the books into libraries. It's not about just getting that first glut of sales. It's about the steady and getting them into libraries. And that's how your books become immortal is not by being an, an, a New York Times bestseller. Some, plenty of those books spike and then go to the garbage. Yep. Immortality is found in libraries. Yeah. So that's mm. where you have to get your books. Don't care about the NYT bestseller. It's all about libraries. The long game. I I think you're right. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, we always end with 
a piece of oft-repeated writing advice or writing rules that writers are often given when they are trying to do this whole writing books thing. And so we would love to give you a piece of this advice or rule and hear what you have to say about it. Haley, what do you have? Well, okay, I was going to say, how about we each, because we each have one. It has, has, has yours been covered, Lindsay? No, no. Okay, so I, why don't we just, we each say it, and then Maggie can choose which one she wants to answer. She can also answer both, I will say, too. Or both, if you have time. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, yeah. I just am giggling because mine's hitting on a sore spot for Maggie, and I know this, but I... <laughs> oh, I just like, I like when you rant about this because I feel like it's so important, and you're you're one of the people who speaks about it in a very frank way that is also very soul affirming. And I bet you know what it is about. It's about social media. So, (laughs) so here's my, here's my like publishing rule or writing advice thing, which is that you need to have a social media presence or an author brand online in order to like be a capital A author or be capital S successful as an author. What do you think, Maggie? No, you do not. You do not. It is such a lie. And in fact, a lot of publishers are getting, are finally getting wise and are becoming wary of authors who are too busy on social media because they'll get into a controversy. So for a while, publishers and agents were pushing like, get on Twitter, get on Twitter. But now they're realizing like, Mm, our authors behave idiotically on Twitter and then the book gets canceled. Because so, we're all idiots, not because specific people are idiots, but because, because we're, we're all, all idiots. Have, we all have yeah. moments of idiocracy, idiocy. Yeah, idiocy combined with an emotional reaction of someone criticizing you public in this in this public sphere of Twitter. Get off Twitter. I don't have a Twitter. I have never felt the need to have a Twitter. Twitter has not having a sort of modest Instagram. Um, or a, a modest social media presence as, as opposed to like an explosive one has absolutely has affected my career zero. You will not get a book deal based on your follower number. They want the book itself. And if your book, if you are too social media addled to be able to write the book, I mean, social media is, a it's, <laughs> you're correct that I do right I almost just like break down because this social media the only people who benefit when we think social media is important are the social media companies books do not get sold by Twitter books do not get sold by Instagram you might be able to get do like a nice um pre-sales push but you could do that using an email newsletter too you could do that by texting everyone you've ever met Social media does not push books. Librarians push books. Teachers push books. Human beings push books. Social media, it's a conspiracy. They want you to believe that it's important because it it supports Mark Zuckerberg's wealth. But Mm -hmm. books and social media, you can be very successful. You can get book deals and have 64 followers. It really doesn't. Has it has mm. has having you know you Lindsay you don't have eighty thousand no. followers no has, no has anyone ever been like we might consider giving you this book deal if you had more followers nope no nope they do not care they care about the content of the book 
And the content of celebrity trying to hawk like a, a memoir or like a celebrity cookbook or something. But if you're an actual author, editors do not care how many followers you have. My, yeah, my editor looked at my Twitter a couple times and would send me emails like razzing me about it, but that was it. It was not, it was just, and that's because we're friends. Like that's, you know, that's not, well, and, and not only that, but like you posted, was it maybe yesterday on Instagram, you posted just about like the algorithms on Instagram are maddening and post what you want. And your Instagram has always been like wild. It is full of, well, it has been, and it's such, but it's such a delight to go to your Instagram. And whenever you post, I get super excited because I know it's not going to just be like, here's a day in the life of my writing, whatever, or here's my latest work in progress. It's going to be like Maggie in a suit in a field dancing to Enya. And which, (laughs) which does relate to your work overall, you know, in a lot of ways, but it's so the way you use Instagram, which is, I think you're like social media of choice. And like, that's where you do feel comfortable for now is so seems so caution thrown to the wind. I'm going to post whatever I want as a form of expression that has nothing to do with trying to reel in people to buy my book. Well, thank you. I, I mean, I appreciate that. I, I do consider Instagram to be part of my oeuvre. So I consider Instagram to be part of my artistic and personal expression. And, you know, that's the, the people who get a lot of followers are the people who are constantly engaging, constantly posting, constantly sharing. And to me, that's not art. That's just, that's just posting to rack up followers. And so my, my approach to, to Instagram is it's, yeah. <laughs> and it's just died. It was just like RIP. But yes, thank you. <laughs> it's so good. And it's, I do yeah. love Instagram. I have this tortured relationship with it because I love Instagram. I can express things. I think that photos and captions is its own form of art. And I can express things with just a photo and caption combination. It's unique. And so I love Instagram. I can't really bring myself to quit it, even though I see all of these toxic effects, um, especially on young people. But I just want to encourage young people to use it the way that feels right to you and don't give a shit about how many followers you have because it really doesn't matter. I have this weird conflict about it because on the one hand, Twitter has been my like entry. I feel like, look, I could have just, I could have just queried my agent or, you know, just done things um, in a very straightforward way without Twitter. But I learned a lot about publishing, like American publishing from Twitter and met people through it. And so it feels like I've gotten lots of positive things from it. Um, And the way that my agent found my work was through like a Twitter kind of um, pitch thing. So, yeah, I just have. As long as you're in control. You know, well, no- I'm not. That's the thing. It's like now <laughs> I go on Twitter. <laughs> the thing is, like, Twitter in 2012 is one thing. Twitter yeah. now is very different. And so now I'll literally be on Twitter for 15 minutes and I'm like, why am I in such a bad mood? Oh, because I opened Twitter. Seriously, it's just yeah. like whether it's just seeing everyone's huge successes, which of course I'm happy for them, but also like when you're trying to write a book and you, you're struggling. You don't need that. No. Mm-hmm. Like, and 
or it's like people complaining or it's just really, really terrible things happening in the world. And it's yeah. just like, like a hundred different pieces of information in like five seconds. And you're like, oh, why am I feeling down? Why am I feeling irritable? Well, there's a very direct link between Twitter and my mood. So yeah, that's why I have been thinking of leaving it. But um, because yeah, it's a different, it's different I now than it was. You. I- I was on Twitter for a while and I never figured out how to use, I never figured out my art with Twitter. I never figured out how to be mm-hmm. myself. I, ne- I tried for several years to like be myself on Twitter and I could not. And so I deleted it and I never regretted it ever. Mm. The only thing I slightly regretted is I did have a blue check mark on Twitter and oh, nice. on Instagram and, and the sort of like high achiever in me is kind of like misses that I did have that blue check mark and I threw it away but there's, there's, there's beauty in that as well throw the blue check marks in the garbage yeah yeah because ultimately that as you said it doesn't really help you to sell books it doesn't make a difference so it's no. just stroking your ego yep <laughs> which is important it's which important like, yeah <laughs> we all need a nice ego stroke but hopefully you are aware of when you need it and what you're doing and hopefully mm-hmm. you can get it from a trusted source Twitter gives mm-hmm. you a blue check mark. That's not like holistic ego stroke. Get it from a loved one who can tell you yeah. a genuine compliment, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like my agent recently was like, if you ever need a reminder that I think you're a genius, just send me an email and just be like, I need to hear it now. And then she'll be like, yeah, I think you're a genius. I love you. Oh. Like sometimes you just need that. I love that. I do too. That's a good agent. <laughs> Seriously, (laughs) Haley's agent is amazing. Seriously amazing. Well, Haley, did you have one that you wanted to? So what I was going to say, which I think we kind of covered a little bit, but, um, but yeah, my idea was to ask you about the, the, um, the idea that you should write the book of your heart. Like that's the book that you should write is the book of your heart. Yeah. I want to hear you talk about this, Maggie. I believe if it's the book of your heart, it will come out one way or another. So if something is in your heart, it it will come out. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) So you can, you know, I have the book of my heart, um, if we're going to call it that, which I do think is that, you know, we know what we're talking about when we meet, when we say the book of our heart, the book of your heart. Mm -hmm. And I have that, I've been working on it on and off for 12 years. And it's always there. It's always changing. I'm on like my 100th revision. Um, It will happen. And then in the meantime, all the books that I write out of kind of cynical necessity become kind of minor books of my heart, like pillars of of my heart. Um, So I just think relax. Um, I, I also think that people think the world is ending tomorrow and it's not climate change is a big deal but we're all going to be fine and adapt and figure out how to live um publishing is not dead um the ya sphere particularly is contracting but it's just another phase i bet in eight years there'll be another boom you don't, I think a lot of people feel like they have to write their magnum opus now before the world ends. And it's like, (laughs) everyone can relax a little bit, just go with your process, 
write whatever feels appropriate or, or correct or essential to you right now, the book of your heart will, will come. But we have anxiety, Maggie. <laughs> the anxiety is high. <laughs> too, so I sympathize. I do too. I, it really does feel sometimes like the world is going to end, but yeah, I don't think it is. And, and you, you know, you can come and throw this podcast in my face in, in, in five years, <laughs> but like, I, I don't think that we all sufficiently had a group hug about the fact that like Trump was our president for four years and we're fine. I know that that's a sort of controversial thing to say because a lot of people are not fine. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, the effects of that administration will reverberate for decades. Um, but overall, no one got nuked. Yeah. The economy did not fully collapse. We got through that and we never had a moment as a world where we all just went like, we got through it. It was like yeah. the hysteria just continued. And yeah. I, I just really want to encourage people to just pause and take a take a moment to be like, that was bad. And we did get through. So we can And the pandemic and through. Yeah. 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 I do that's... I just remember when Trump was elected and feeling awful and terrified and just numb almost. And then logging onto Twitter, which sometimes can bring something wonderful to you, which is the irritating thing about Twitter is that it, it, every once in a while gives you this wonderful gift, but, um, a, a black woman saying, okay, everybody who is freaking out about Trump, it's mostly white people on my timeline, because this is how we have felt with almost like every president, like this is like, welcome to how a lot of marginalized people feel with every election, like mm -hmm. congratulations, now you get it. And that was sort of sobering and made me feel relaxed in a terrible way. Cause like, I never want to, you know, you don't want to feel solidarity with somebody by feeling scared or depressed that way. Um, but it did give me that feeling of resilience to just be like, okay, yeah. Like I this has oh, been normal for a lot of people for a long time. Just because I'm noticing it now. Exactly. Just because I'm noticing it now does not mean that it has not existed. Yeah, that that other people have survived this and I will too. And it's a privilege, obviously, to to only feel that way now. But you're absolutely right that like the worst thing that we could imagine, a Trump presidency, a pandemic, Biden now or whatever, like we yeah, we all because because people always do. Mm -hmm. Well, I love the idea of minor works of your heart. Yeah. Like the idea that every book that you write is like we were saying before, whether you write memoir, fiction, picture books, whether you write like ca your characters are animals or aliens or whatever you write, your heart is going to be there on the page. Mm -hmm. Like you can't really prevent that. Um, so you might have a book no. of your heart, which is like the book that you've been wanting to write for a long time, or it's, it feels like your story in like a very particular kind of way. But all your books, whether you start with like resistance or cynicism or negativity or just going like, oh, I can't possibly write this book or whether you start going like, oh, that's interesting. Assignment. Yeah, yeah, yeah like a, a, money, a, money, a money grab. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like all your books are going to have your heart in them. So don't worry too much about the heart that it's always there. Whether you like part it or not. of the process that readies you yeah. to write mm -hmm. that actual the 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 big book, you know, mm. all of these minor works of works of your heart. Um, 
you you won't get to that big one without these without these minor works paving the way for you. Which reminds me so much of what you were saying earlier about Honor Girl and just doing the best that you could with what you had, which mm-hmm. then taught you what you needed to learn to write La Solvia piece and to have the tools and to the know-how, which you'll carry on to your next one. And if it had been yeah. up to me, I wouldn't be on this path at all because I would have never written a graphic novel. So right. you know, taking suggestions and being open to, to different pa- to paths that are different from the one you envisioned for yourself that you know don't be afraid of that yeah thank you so much for listening to story of the book if you like this episode please share it with a friend or give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts until next time stay safe and keep writing bye Bye. (laughs) 